Welcome to Aesthetic Staff Bootcamp. This educational podcast, brought to you by the Aesthetic Society and sponsored by Elastin, is geared specifically towards aesthetic plastic surgery staff. I'm Dr. Regina Newhan, a now retired plastic surgeon with a long practice history, and I'm happy to be your guide for this informative experience, which is designed to help get you up to speed in learning about a variety of popular aesthetic procedures and is intended to be a supplement to your surgeon's instructions and unique protocols. This podcast will benefit new staff, both clinical and non-clinical, as they navigate their plastic surgery office duties and care of patients, but it may also serve as a refresher for established team members. For each episode, we'll highlight at least five basic categories of information regarding the specific topic or procedure being discussed. These categories are, number one, overview and goals of the procedure, including definitions, medical terminology, and pertinent anatomy. Number two, basic procedural technique, how it's done. Number three, consultation pearls, including what's important and who's a candidate. Number four, perioperative care, which is unique to each office, but there are some common basics. And number five, patient experience and concerns, like what to expect afterwards, patient questions or problems, and potential complications. There will be a lot of information provided in a user-friendly manner. However, you may find it's a lot to digest at one sitting. Please feel free to revisit sections of each episode as often as necessary to meet your own personal needs. So let's get started. This episode is all about injectables, like Botox and filler. They are so popular in today's aesthetics market, and therefore it's imperative to gain a good knowledge base regarding them. In fact, though they are essentially non-surgical, they consistently represent the most frequently performed aesthetic procedures, according to statistics compiled by the Aesthetic Society. Each year, billions of dollars are spent on injectables. Yes, that's billions with a B. So let's get right to it and go over the essentials. Injectables are simply products in a syringe which are injected, primarily into the face, in order to achieve an enhanced visual appearance or improve a perceived problem, though certainly their use can be applied to other areas of the body, such as the hands. The effects are largely temporary, but even so, some can still last quite a long time. And in the right candidate, they can make an impressive difference. It's important to realize that while injectables are able to help RITIDS, R-H-Y-T-I-D-S, which is the medical name for wrinkles, they won't fully eliminate those deep established ones. Nor can injectables truly correct textural problems. The latter are better treated with some type of skin resurfacing, such as the use of laser, mechanical, or chemical peels. Furthermore, while injectables may be used to round out or complement surgical results, they cannot substitute for a surgical procedure if a lift or a tuck is truly indicated due to excess skin or redundant folds. Trying to force them to suffice when a true facelift is needed will spell disappointment at the least and an unnatural, overdone appearance that is hard to correct at the worst. Overall, they are an essential tool and can be considered an important component in the spectrum of layered rejuvenation treatments available to patients. So that you can better understand the role of injectables, let's take a brief moment to overview how the face ages and what signs of aging typically develop. This sets the stage for discussing how injectables may counteract those signs. 
starting even as early as in our 20s, we may begin to see some signs of loss of skin elasticity, manifested by small creases and fine wrinkles developing in areas of frequent movement, such as around the eyes and mouth. As the decades continue, we will see deeper creases forming during facial movement, and eventually these lines will start to remain present, even when the face is at rest. As skin elasticity decreases further, we will see stretched out and excess skin accumulate since it no longer bounces back as before. This can create skin folds, which goes beyond creases. But loss of elasticity is not the only change going on here. In fact, it wasn't until just a few decades ago that aesthetic providers collectively understood there was another aging mechanism at work, the gradual loss of underlying tissue volume. This process may slowly begin in the 30s or even late 20s, then accelerate from there. It's due not only to a reduction of youthful fat in the face, but also to a descending positioning of that fat. The fat migrates south following gravity. The resulting shadows created on the face highlight the appearance of age. And in our later decades, some thinning of the skeletal bone structure can contribute to overall volume loss as well. This is all a natural progression, but it's important to realize that signs of aging can also be accelerated by medical conditions or by environmental factors such as chronic sun exposure or by activities such as smoking. So how can injectables help? Well, in different ways. Injectables are divided into two main categories based on their mechanisms of achieving the goal of cosmetic or aesthetic improvement. The first group is neuromodulators like Botox and the second is fillers. Now we'll discuss each of these separately for clarity, though in reality, their actions can be complementary. Therefore, they are often used in conjunction with each other at the same setting. Let's start with neuromodulators, and of these, Botox is by far the most common. Other neuromodulators with slightly different properties include Dysport, D-Y-S-P-O-R-T, Xeomin, X-E-O-M-I-N, and Juveau, J-E-U-V-E-A-U. These are all types of botulinum toxin, but they vary a little in formulation, length of effectiveness, and price point. But in the interest of simplicity during this podcast episode, I'll refer to Botox as representing all the neuromodulators as a whole. They all work by weakening the contractions of the targeted muscles that contribute to the formation of wrinkles. And if enough is used, there can be full paralysis of the muscle. The effect is temporary, however. Botox is produced in a biological lab by bacteria, which are actually the same type of bacteria responsible for botulism from spoiled food. But it was discovered that in small, purified doses, this toxin can have beneficial effects to improve facial appearance. When it's injected near a muscle, the muscle cell membranes are blocked from the chemical stimulation that a supplying nerve creates. Therefore, there is less or even no contraction, depending on the dosage. When the contraction of muscle under the skin is reduced, then there is no bunching up of the skin, and the skin wrinkles and creases will be relaxed, as long as permanent etching of the skin has not yet occurred. Botox is an ideal treatment for certain areas of the face, but not all, since we don't want to weaken or paralyze certain important functional muscles. Some people, when they hear Botox, think, oh no, frozen face, which sounds completely unnatural. But with a skilled injector, there is a way to utilize Botox to reduce wrinkles and lines while still preserving some essential facial expression. 
the most common areas for Botox use include the forehead, where those horizontal lines can develop over time from the frontalis muscles, and the glabella, right above the nose, where people develop frown lines, sometimes in the shape of the number 11. By the way, the word glabella comes from the Latin word glabellus, which means smooth. It refers to the area between the eyebrows, which has no hair. Another common area is periorbital, or around the orbits, the eyes, to treat rightids that are called crow's feet, or lateral canthal lines. And Botox may be useful in a strategic combination of areas to produce a chemical brow lift, if you will. Additional applications for Botox injections can involve the perioral area around the mouth to treat fine wrinkles or to reduce a gummy smile. Though you don't want too much here or it would be hard to use a straw. It can treat bunny lines on the sides of the nose and judiciously it can treat limited areas of the neck to help relax those vertical platysmal bands that tend to show up with age. Sometimes Botox has even been used at the corner angle of the jaw to reduce bulky masseter muscles, which may be more prominent than aesthetically desired. But caution has to be taken to avoid creating a functional problem for chewing. It's helpful to know that when the glabella, the forehead lines, and the lateral canthal lines are injected with Botox, that is considered on-label use, as these areas are FDA-approved for cosmetic intervention. Treatment of any of the other mentioned areas is considered off-label. Moving on to fillers, their action is quite different. They are used to restore volume or plump up an area to make it appear more youthful. They do not relax muscle. Fillers build up support under the skin, making it less likely to wrinkle or fold. But of course, there are limits. You don't want the end result to look inflated or overcorrected by trying to fill up too much extra skin. Historically, over the last century or more, there had been intermittent rudimentary attempts to introduce filler to the face. But then about 40 plus years ago, the concept became more popular and the reigning filler was bovine collagen. Yes, originating from cows. It was easy to inject, but fell out of favor as an isolated ingredient due to the high rate of tissue reaction and a very short lifespan of about a month. Then the next generation of filler arrived, which is probably now the most frequently used type and that is hyaluronic acid often abbreviated HA. Hyaluronic acid is a wonderful compound that is already naturally found in our bodies, so rarely does it cause any type of reaction. It works in two ways to add needed volume. First, this gel plumps up the area where it is injected by simply occupying space. And secondly, it has the chemical property of being hydrophilic, hydro meaning water and philic meaning attraction, so it attracts water from the surrounding area. That additional fluid contributes to the maintenance of plumpness. Over the last 20 years or so, ingenuity and development have flourished, resulting in an explosion of filler varieties. These days, some popular examples of HA fillers are Juvederm, Restylane, Bellotero, and the newer Revance Resilient HA products, though there are certainly more. And within these product lines, there are multiple product formulations available with different names manufactured using various molecular cross-linking techniques to alter the G-prime value, which measures filler firmness and elasticity. Cohesivity is an important measure of the material as well. Higher G-prime suggests a thicker material, while a lower G-prime usually means a more spreadable product. Therefore, each different filler formulation may be suited for different facial areas and different depth of placement.
Now what's an added benefit of using an HA filler? Well, if a patient has a change of heart or there's a problem with filler positioning, hyaluronic acid filler can actually be dissolved by injection of the corresponding enzyme, hyaluronidase, which chemically breaks down the HA. Another category of filler is described by the term biostimulatory. Examples are hydroxyl apatate, like RADIS, which has a high G prime and is composed of tiny calcium particles suspended in gel, and poly-L lactic acid, like Sculptra, which is reconstituted in a water base. Biostimulatory fillers do just what it sounds like. They stimulate the tissues in the injected area to form new collagen, which builds up and thickens the region. Such physical changes can lead to longer-lasting results, up to one to two years. Yet they are not really dissolvable like HA fillers. So some injectors prefer to treat a first-time patient with an HA filler to see if they like the look before committing to something long-lasting or non-reversible. There are some other synthetic types of filler, such as polymethylmethacrylate, or PMMA, and polyalkylamide, and these are less frequently used. A final category of filler is a person's own fat, or what's called autologous fat, and it's introduced to the face by what's known as fat transfer or fat grafting. Fat can be harvested from somewhere on the body through liposuction, then sterilely concentrated and placed into a syringe, and finally injected into areas of the face needing volume. It's a little unpredictable how much of the fat will survive and stay in place versus how much the body will clear away, so sometimes the injector will put a little extra in to compensate. But the portion that takes well will generally last the longest of any filler, unless the patient loses weight, of course. And as an added bonus, fat has also been reported to have some rejuvenation biostimulatory effects, too. The most common areas treated with filler are the cheekbone or malar region, which can sag or develop some hollowing, the nasolabial folds, which are the big smile lines or folds that go from the nose to the corner of the mouth, the lips, which can become deflated or thinned out with age, or maybe never were very plump even in younger days. And marionette lines, which develop from the corner of the mouth down to the jawline and are a sign of age. This last one is a reference to a wooden puppet with a moving chin. Other areas that can be treated with filler are the jawline itself, from ear to chin, to give a straighter or more defined look, or the chin alone, if it is a little receding or has a bumpy contour. An area we don't think about often, but is a telltale sign of age, is hollowing of the temple. It may be surprising, but a little bit of filler there goes a long way to restore a youthful appearance, so don't overlook it. Even earlobes can be injected with a little filler to plump them out, since they can stretch and wrinkle as we age, making it difficult to support earrings sometimes. And increasingly, filler has been used to produce some minor contour corrections to the nose by disguising bumps and asymmetry. A liquid rhinoplasty, if you will. So what's the procedure protocol for injections? Let's start with who does the injections. In any particular office, it could be the plastic surgeon or a specially trained injection nurse or a combination of both. But whoever performs the injections must have excellent mastery of facial anatomy, and as you can imagine, a steady hand is essential. This typically comes naturally with experience and confidence. So how are the injectables injected? 
For Botox, the substance comes freeze-dried in a vial and must be reconstituted with saline. The resulting concentration of liquid can vary depending upon how much saline was actually used for reconstitution. Some injectors prefer a more concentrated Botox depending upon the size of the area to be treated and their particular preference. Usually there is a little less extravasation risk and less swelling from a more concentrated and therefore smaller injection volume. Botox is dosed in units and must be administered accurately, so typically a 1cc or tuberculin syringe is used with a small needle. A trusted assistant may be assigned to prepare the Botox per the injector's protocol if the injector is comfortable with such, and as long as careful technique is used and detailed records are kept for documentation. Once a vial has been opened and reconstituted, it should be kept refrigerated when not in use and used within 24 hours. As for the injection technique, Botox is injected in multiple small aliquots and is directly injected into the targeted muscle without using any fanning or tunneling technique. It's crucial not to allow the substance to migrate to any undesired areas, otherwise unintended weakening or paralysis of other muscles may occur. For filler, however, most formulations come already prepared in a syringe, though one exception would be Sculptra, or poly-L-lactic acid, which needs to be reconstituted with sterile water prior to injection. Many injectors prefer to substitute a slender, blunt-tip cannula for the regular needle to help reduce risk of inadvertently injected filler into a blood vessel. Due to the viscosity or thickness of the product, a somewhat larger bore needle is usually required as compared to Botox. As a side note, another technique often employed to reduce chances of inadvertent vascular injection is to aspirate or pull back on the syringe before injecting. If a red flash of blood is seen, the needle must be redirected. This sounds great in theory, but especially when dealing with thick substances and tissues and small needles, this technique may be difficult to perform reliably. Many times, multiple syringes of filler are required for the desired amount of correction, though certainly there are times when less than a full syringe may be needed for a smaller area. It's important to read through the various product inserts for guidelines. But please know that most manufacturers recommend any leftover product portion be discarded. Now the depth of injection depends on the viscosity of the substance and on the treatment goal. Filler can be administered at depth levels ranging from dermal and subdermal to much deeper. By the way, the dermis is the main layer of skin underneath the epidermis. Typically thicker or more viscous filler is injected in deeper layers with the goal of restoring volume and maintaining stability of filler positioning. And fillers that are thinner and silkier are suitable for more superficial injections, where more subtle corrections are required. Using a thicker substance superficially may otherwise have the undesired effect of creating lumpiness. Depending upon the location of the injection and the desired aesthetic outcome, various injection techniques can be used. These include, but are not limited to, tunneling and fanning, distributing small amounts of filler over a broader area, versus aliquot or point injections for direct filler deposits in a small bolus fashion. What is key to all these techniques, however, is that the deposit of filler is done during the withdrawal of the needle rather than during the introduction into the targeted area. This is an important step to provide a more even distribution of filler and to help avoid vascular or blood vessel injuries. For any injection, 
Numbing of the skin, whether topical or by local anesthetic injection, is not routine but may be helpful for certain patients at the discretion of the injector. Some fillers actually have lidocaine already mixed in. Prior to injection, skin should be cleaned per the office protocol and placement of a cool pack over the intended injection area can help both with discomfort as well as with constricting blood vessels. After injection, administration of cool packs is of benefit too. If tolerated, positioning the patient in the upright or semi-reclined position is ideal to help with accurate placement of filler since facial tissues may shift in the supine position. Once again, keeping careful records of units, cc's, areas of administration, etc. is essential. Some offices have digital or printed charts and diagrams to facilitate this, but if not, this recording should be undertaken by the injector and staff regardless. Next up, the consultation process is key to the success of injecting Botox and fillers. As I mentioned early on, injectables are ideal for patients who want improvement in their facial appearance, but don't need surgical intervention. In other words, they only need a modest change, and the primary problem is neither extra skin, nor is it a superficial texture issue. On exam, do they have mild to moderate rightids and or areas with mild to moderate volume loss? then they are likely a good candidate for injectables, either as a sole method of treatment or in conjunction with another type of intervention. Once the patient is deemed a good candidate, the goal is to produce a more youthful and perhaps even a healthier overall look. Actually, this may require a series of injections over extended time rather than a single one to achieve full potential. So patients should be informed of this possibility at the time of consultation. Many people present with an acute concern about one specific aspect of the face, but the educated evaluator will include a broader assessment of the surrounding facial regions or of the entire face as well, since the condition of these adjacent regions may actually be impacting the area the patient is focused on. Pointing out the findings to the patient can help them see the bigger picture and have a better understanding of why a single injection of something may not be the answer. This enlightenment is also the key to the patient becoming an ally in the treatment process as it fosters trust and loyalty, both of which may be beneficial for future services. Generally, patients relish the idea of having a treatment plan, particularly if it is recommended with confidence. They are more engaged this way and committed to the process. As part of the treatment plan, a proposal may be made for performing a combination of filler and Botox injections, or a combination of different fillers. As discussed earlier, this latter-mentioned concept of using more than one type of product is prompted by the fact that certain filler formations are better suited for different regions of the face. Some fillers may be chosen based on features like their G-prime, etc. Less firm formulations like Volbella or Restylane Silk may be preferred to treat fine wrinkles while stiffer formulations like Voluma and Restylane Lift might be used to restore fullness over the bone in the midface, though these two vary in their separate measurement of cohesivity. And fillers with intermediate firmness might be considered ideal for lip augmentation. Early on, it may be helpful for the injector and their office to keep a handy chart of filler properties and uses, because it's a lot to try to remember at first. 
During the consultation, the patient must be cautioned that while results can produce some lovely changes, they are indeed limited. A person is not a candidate for Botox or filler if they are not realistic in their expectations. Other consultation points. A good standard set of pictures should be taken before any treatment with injectables. These are essentially your main documentation of what the patient looked like prior to injection, which could become important if any problematic issues develop later. And as always, taking a reasonable medical history is important, particularly screening for a history of bleeding problems or the use of aspirin and blood thinners. Additionally, people who are immunocompromised may not be the best candidates for injection of a foreign material into the face. Checking for a previous history of facial surgery could also prove wise. Certainly prior surgery does not preclude the ability to have injections, but there may be some underlying scar tissue present, which could impair a product's ability to be distributed satisfactorily through the tissues. Lastly, in regards to timing, it is important to plan ahead or around any upcoming event that the patient may have where they wish to show off their results. Some injectable treatments will have visible results immediately, but Botox, for example, will take at least five to seven days to fully kick in, and the biostimulatory filler Sculptra will not only take more than one treatment, but a few months to produce full results. Furthermore, injections could result in swelling or potential bruising, and therefore would not be suitable to be undertaken within a day or two of an event. Now let's discuss periprocedural care. Before treatment, as mentioned previously, if there is a history of use of anticoagulant medication, NSAIDs, aspirin, or certain herbal supplements, the dosing of these may need to be modified to minimize bleeding risks. Also, if a patient has a history of herpes or cold sores, there is a small risk that injections may induce an outbreak. The surgeon might consider prescribing antiviral medication to be used prophylactically in these cases. After injection treatment, a cold pack is helpful to reduce potential for bruising or edema and may help with any lingering discomfort. Generally, patients should try to remain upright and not lie down for the first six hours. Rubbing of the treated area is usually avoided unless there are specific instructions from the injector to do so. The reason is that early massage may result in redistribution of the Botox or filler into an undesired location, potentially inducing a complication. Patients usually return to work the same day, but are advised to avoid strenuous exercise and intense sun exposure for the first 24 hours after injection. These risk worsening any redness or swelling. Some injectors will advise avoiding alcohol consumption during this period in addition as it dilates peripheral blood vessels. If Botox was injected, repeated contractions of the target muscles are helpful over the next day or so to accelerate the timing of full uptake of the Botox. Echomosis or bruising may be treated as desired, such as with Arnica Montana in oral or gel form, oral bromelain, and or vitamin K cream. As patients leave following treatment, it's important to give them instructions to contact the office or the injector with concerns about reactions or adverse events. Taking it a step further, providing patients with a typed handout or digital instructions saves time for the office and is a convenient reference for the patient. And, just as pictures were important to take prior to treatment, it is equally valuable to get a set after treatment results are visible. Not only is this important for patient records in general, 
but it is helpful documentation if later down the road the patient should happen to complain that the injectable didn't work, when really the problem is that the lifespan is up and the product is dissipated. Our last section is regarding patient experience and concerns. So let's discuss what the patient can expect right after treatment, as well as questions they may have. We'll also talk about potential complications. Regarding treatment, there may be some pain with injection, but typically it doesn't last very long, so a formal pain medication prescription is usually not going to be necessary. And redness and swelling may occur in the short term, but rarely is an anti-inflammatory medication or an oral steroid needed to combat this. A common patient question is, when can full results be expected? As mentioned before, Botox takes five to seven days to fully activate, or potentially less if the patient exercises their targeted facial muscles. Most of the filler will show results right away, once any swelling has resolved, since the results are created primarily by the filler's volumetric presence rather than a chemical reaction process. That being said, however, biostimulatory fillers such as Sculptra and even Radius will continue to show improvement over a few weeks to months. Another frequent question is, how long will the effects last and will maintenance injections be needed? Again, it depends on the substance. Botox generally lasts about three months on average, although there are reports of a small cumulative effect when it is used consistently. Many hyaluronic acid fillers may last closer to six months to a year, though certain formulations can linger even up to 24 months. And biostimulatory filler can last longer as well. Radius, for example, can last 12 to 15 months. Sculptra, though it requires a few injection sessions to achieve maximum benefit, can last close to two years. Now, all of this being said, you should know that changes created by injectables do not suddenly disappear one day. Actually, there is a gradual process for dissolution of each substance, such that a patient may want to consider coming in for a touch-up prior to the maximum expected time when a particular substance will be gone, if they are wanting to maintain an even-keel result. Okay, then what about complications? In general, injectables are well-tolerated, and complications are most often minor. Bruising or ecchymosis is probably the most common complaint from patients, and here is where vigilant observation for vessels to avoid, usually veins, is important, as is pre-screening for patients with aspirin or blood thinner use. These people will often bruise no matter what, despite pre-cooling the skin to constrict blood vessels and using careful injection technique, so the injector may decline to treat these patients while they are actively on this medication. In general, bruising will take a couple of weeks to resolve, but again the process can be sped up with topical or oral medications. Rash, severe foreign body reaction, or allergic reaction are all possible, but relatively infrequent. An antihistamine or steroid may be helpful in the short term, but not always. If the reaction was to an HA filler, then hyaluronidase, also known as Y-Dase or Vitrase, can be injected to dissolve the remaining HA as best as possible. For some of the fillers, especially longer-lasting ones, Nodules or granulomas may develop under the skin, though not commonly. They may be an inflammatory reaction to a foreign body. Treatment options include massage and perhaps even steroid injection, 
but there are some cases where surgical removal could become necessary. Risks specific to Botox include either extravasation or poor injection technique causing the wrong muscle to be affected. This could result in eyelid ptosis or drooping, an irregular smile, and worsened asymmetry to name a few problems. While waiting the three months for Botox to dissipate, the best thing that may be done for eyelid ptosis may be the use of iopidine eye drops daily to stimulate eyelid opening. For filler, malposition or lumpiness following injection can be problems, creating visible contour irregularities or even impacting muscle function due to unusual positioning or the bulkiness of too much filler resulting in muscle impingement. As discussed, an HA filler can be dissolved with hyaluronidase if needed. Other non-dissolvable filler types may be difficult to milk back out, and very rarely a small surgical procedure may be required if evacuation is deemed appropriate. While we are talking about filler malposition, I should also mention a specific finding called a Tyndall effect, T-Y-N-D-A-L-L. It is a bluish appearance of the tear trough region of the lower eyelid due to light reflectivity of filler that has likely been placed too superficially. Again, this could be treated with hyaluronidase to dissolve HA filler, but in the worst case scenario, the filler may have to be formally evacuated. Infection can occasionally occur, which will either be obvious with severe redness and drainage, or may be indolent and caused by the formation of a biofilm, even if culture results do not show any growth. Antibiotics are usually administered in either case. Unusual but possible are skin color changes or dyschromia. This could be manifested by persistent redness, hyperpigmentation, or depigmentation. Often these will resolve with time, but if persistent, may require formal treatment remedies and occasionally could be permanent. Sensation or motor movement changes could be seen if there was a nerve injury from an injection needle or if there's simply compression of a nerve from a collection of filler in a tight space. These most often resolve and are rare to require formal intervention. Unfortunately, though, serious complications have been reported, such as skin sloughing or even blindness, caused by filler accidentally injected into an artery and creating an embolus, which obstructs blood flow. Very uncommon, but could happen. For best chance at salvaging a serious problem, it is so important to recognize it early on and treat accordingly. Early signs of vascular occlusion or ischemia include blanching of the skin and pain beyond the discomfort that would be expected with injection. If any of these signs are noted, injection must be stopped immediately. Urgent treatment with hyaluronidase, warm compress, and massage are indicated, and topical nitroplase may be considered to dilate skin vessels. The hyaluronidase may have to be injected hourly in severe cases. And if the retinal artery of the eye was accidentally embolized, vision changes or loss would be noted by the patient. The riskiest areas for this include injections around the nose and glabella. Urgent consultation with an ophthalmologist and early treatment is imperative. Possible treatments may include timolol eye drops and oral acetazolamide to lower intraocular pressure, sublingual aspirin or nitroglycerin, and even intravenous medication. Again, fortunately, this particular complication is quite rare. 
Well, we have covered a lot of ground on this topic of injectables. I hope you'll leave our discussion with a nice, basic understanding of their proper use and how they contribute to facial rejuvenation. Remember that the keys to success are making sure that number one, the injector and team are well prepared. Number two, that injectables are a good fit for the patient's particular aesthetic concern. And number three, the patient has realistic expectations and is vested in the treatment plan. With all of that lined up, the surgeon, the staff, and the patient can enjoy all the benefits that injectables have to offer. That concludes this episode of Aesthetic Staff Bootcamp Podcast, available to you exclusively through the Aesthetic Society. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and found it both enlightening and useful. Don't forget to explore the other informative episodes as well. Special thanks to Elastin for sponsorship of this series. For patients considering surgical procedures, pain and downtime are two of the biggest concerns. That's why Elastin Skincare developed a revolutionary new product specifically designed to help minimize discomfort, accelerate the recovery process by reducing the appearance of bruising and swelling, and improve the overall patient experience. While Elastin is widely recognized for its groundbreaking periprocedural skincare technology, Reform and Repair Complex with Trihex Technology is the company's first innovation in the surgical space, and top plastic surgeons are already talking about it. Dr. Lori A. Cassis of the University of Chicago Medicine says, the acceleration in the healing process for the patient and the improved patient experience is undeniable. Learn more about Reform and Repair and Elastin's other procedure pairing and daily skincare at www.elastin.com reform. That's A-L-A-S-T-I-N dot com slash reform.